look, if you are striving for longevity, and we now know by far the number one cause of morbidity mortality in humans is atherosclerotic heart disease. I don't wait till you show up with atherosclerosis in your arteries to prevent atherosclerosis because that takes 20, 30 years to develop. So I want to know your ApoB when you're 20 years old. And if it exceeds a certain threshold, I'm lowering ApoB through whatever is necessary starting at age 20. ApoB is a straight line from life to death, atherosclerotic death. So if you want to tell me, but I feel good, I even did my coronary calcium and it's zero, so you have no calcified plaque. I have no clue whether you have other plaque or not. Uh, I'm going to not worry about, I say, you know what? That's called Russian roulette. It's not a game I would play with myself or my loved ones. If you want to do it, be my guest. Yeah, you know, so sometimes when you play Russian roulette, there's a bullet in the chamber. And ApoB is a bullet for heart disease. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the fourth part of the Heart Disease Masterclass with Dr. Thomas Dayspring, one of the world's leading experts in lipids. This part is one of my favorites so far because it's the most practical. You're going to learn about the different parameters in your lipid panel and the key values you should shoot for. You'll also learn about the different tactics you can use to maximize your longevity and minimize your risk of heart disease. This is going to be a good one. Let's go. ApoB, people at high risk should be aiming for less than 50 milligrams per deciliter. That's what the European guideline calls for right now. LDL cholesterol under 55, ApoB in the 50 range too. So that's what they call for. Now, if somebody, remember guidelines only get so progressive. <laughs> they, they are low. Myself, look, if you are striving for longevity, and we now know by far the number one cause of morbidity mortality in humans is atherosclerotic heart disease. I don't wait till you show up with atherosclerosis in your arteries to prevent atherosclerosis because that takes 20, 30 years to develop. So I want to know your ApoB when you're 20 years old. And if it exceeds a certain threshold, I'm lowering ApoB through whatever is necessary starting at age 20 with knowing that, okay, no prayer, this person ever gets atherosclerosis or the incidence would be dramatically reduced. I'll worry about the next disease that's going to kill him, cancer, other metabolic diseases, you know what. Uh, so the lipid world has come to the realization that not only are the horrific lipid levels the big risk factor, it's any lipid level over time. In the earlier in life, we recognize pathological or potentially pathological concentrations of ApoB particles. The sooner we can intervene, if lifestyle gets you to that level, great. I hope it continues to keep you at that level. But if it does not, you should not deny somebody these incredibly safe pharmacologic mechanisms of lowering it. Something to be determined is maybe you only need periodic ph pharmacologic intervention. Use it for a year or two, lay it off, then resume it a couple of years later. We do that with bisphosphonates and osteoporosis now. When they first came out, we put them on it forever and it destroyed too many osteoclasts and caused in some people brittle bones. Now we give intermittent dosing of PCSK9 inhibitors. Will we ever be doing that with some of our lipid drugs? To be determined, but sooner rather than later, you know, just like cigarette smoking, the sooner you stop it, the better. Hypertension, the sooner you jump on it, the better. You don't get the end organ pathology. Yeah, that's what really should be considered, the temporality component. It took us a long time to recognize that, but it's a crucial part of the picture. On social media, you have some people promoting extreme diets where they get LDL of about 500, and they say, I feel good, but they do not know the consequences in the long term. It's a problem. So listen, I know what they, and it's the ketogenic diet, uh, especially that ketogenic diet's loaded with saturated fat that, through two mechanisms, saturated fat in some people stimulates cholesterol synthesis, so you will not make LDL receptors, but saturated fat by itself decreases the liver's expression of LDL receptors. So in some people who are eating all the saturated fat, they don't even make LDL receptors. Well, if you don't make LDL receptors, what do you think your ApoB is going to be? Through the roof. It exceeds levels we see in genetic lipid and lipoprotein disorders. 
But they say, but I lost weight. I feel good. My insulin levels dropped. My HDL cholesterol went up as if that matters whatsoever. And therefore, um, I'm not going to worry about my ApoB. You know what? That's called the hypothesis that has never, ever been seen in any clinical trial. Every trial I've ever read in my life, not a sub-trial where you can nitpick and cherry pick who you're looking at, but a total trial, ApoB is a straight line from life to death, atherosclerotic death. So if you want to tell me, but I feel good. I even did my coronary calcium and it's zero. So you have no calcified plaque. I have no clue whether you have other plaque or not. Uh, I'm going to not worry about, I say, you know what? That's called Russian roulette. It's not a game I would play with myself or my loved ones. If you want to do it, be my guest. Yeah, you know, so sometimes when you play Russian roulette, there's a bullet in the chamber. And ApoB is a bullet for heart disease. So I think you got to be... You need some serious reading if you're going to ignore ApoB and a serious reading of the 50 trials that show what a, not only risk factor it is, but a causal risk factor for atherosclerosis. Are there some, whatever reason, genetically gifted people who somehow make it to ripe old age with high ApoB? Yes. Is there any way for me to identify who they are earlier in life? No. So I don't want to guess and tell you I, I can yeah, you look pretty healthy to me. But wait a minute. Last week, I admitted an athlete with myocardial infarction. So uh, you can't look at a person and know. So I don't know. It takes courage to look. You want to do it for six months or a year. I doubt the ApoB is going to kill you. But as you said, this is temporarily related to heart disease. So I wouldn't want to go forever with that. And look, the, you probably know better than I but the compliance, long-term compliance with ketogenic diets, like any diet is miserable. So it's probably more of a theoretical issue than, but there are people who are ketogenic diehards and do stay on it a long time and at their own risk. Mm, yeah, I spoke with Gil about this and he said some people who focus more on unsaturated, so polyunsaturated fatty acids may have better outcomes long-term on the keto diet. Yeah, there's some preliminary evidence. There's a cardiologist in California, Danielle Bellardo, very bright cardiologist, young, who's very big into nutrition, and she's a vegan herself. And she actually put herself on a vegan uh, ketogenic diet, but no saturated fats. The other, and her ApoB didn't go through the chart. Now that's an N of one, but I, what Gil has suggested. That's what most, if we get a diehard who says, I want to stay on the ketogenic diet, I say, all right, let me work with you. Stop the saturated fat, just use the monounsaturated, even the proper type of polyunsaturated. And let's see what happens. And if you drop your ApoB, that's what I'm looking at as a lipidologist. You know? In terms of LP little a, can we get that tested in our lipid panel? And what is a target value to aim for? Great question. And the various European guidelines now call for every human being to get LP little a tested once in your life. Remember, it's a genetic protein. You either make it or you don't. You have the genes that produce APOA little a or you do not. So at any age earlier in life, if I test it and you're negative, it never has to be checked again because you're not getting any new genes anytime soon. So, but if it's high, depends what age. Look, if you're a adolescent, there's two things you have to worry about. Not only is it causal for the early onset of premature atherosclerosis, so you would certainly follow every other atherosclerotic risk factor, ApoB, blood pressure, lifestyle, but it's a major causal factor for calcific aortic stenosis which is the second leading cause of aortic valve replacement nowadays. It's a protein that has very osteogenic capabilities. So even in your arteries, it promotes calcification, but in the aortic valve, you build bone in your aortic valve. Obviously, if you've got bone in your aortic valves, they're sooner or later not gonna open and close very well. And that's a terrible cardiovascular morbidity leading to premature heart failure, morbidity, mortality. So the hope is by drastically lowering LP little a, perhaps we can, at least in those people, take aortic stenosis out of the picture too. Look, only clinical trials will show that. But 
I want to know about that early in life. Now, right now, if you had high LP little a, therefore I monitor echocardiograms on you and I look for premature calcification because you're at risk for it. What you do about it is you just get a cardiologist who knows how to check ventricular functions and other aspects associated with aortic valves that they now know with the aortic valve, the earlier in life you do surgery, the better is going to be the outcomes. So if you know early in life a person's got LP little a, you will damn well be looking closely at their aortic valve and left ventricular function to make those type of decisions until we prove that if we these LP little a lowering drugs portend aortic stenosis, great. But that's that's probably a couple of decades away, you know, because you'd have to do a big trial showing that. Right now, they're just investigating LP little a with atherosclerosis. So, but if you're going to have a heart attack at age 30, uh, the sooner I know about LP little a, the, the sooner I would jump in and start making your ApoB physiologic and addressing any other metabolic disease uh, that I would diagnose in you with extensive cardiometabolic investigation. Pick the right mom and dad. <laughs> so I'm still a little bit unclear. Is it a genetic test, the LP little a? It's what you measure is in your blood, how many LP, LDL particles have this apo little a attachment to it. So you're quantitating the number of LP little a particles. Now, because of your genetic makeup, you either make LP little a particles or you don't. But the test is... You could get a genetic test looking for, but it's a multigenic, it's polygenic. It is, it's not the best way to diagnose it. Just see how many, do you have LP little a in your blood? Every human makes a little bit of LP little a, but we know what concentration is associated with no pathology. And once it exceeds a certain concentration, and it's like ApoB, the higher it goes, the more likely you're going to have these terrible outcomes. So it's, it's a particle measurement and it's done in every lab in the world. It's a very easy test. So again, third-party payers may or may not want to pay for it. So you get into those issues, but at least the European guidelines was the first to suggest, look, even if you pay for it, it's not a blood test that's going to bankrupt you. And it's such a crucial part of your future, your vascular future. Uh, it's hard to make the case not to do it. Pediatric guidelines suggest children should all have a full lipid profile before the age of eight, because that's the only way to diagnose genetic familial hypercholesterolemia. Kids don't you know, look like they're going to have a heart attack, so you can't tell by looking. So at the same time you go in for your pediatric initial lipid profile, just do an LP little eight test. That never has to be repeated again in your life until maybe we get a therapy where you might want to monitor, but right now that's not the case. So uh, there's very little reason not to check it. God forbid you know a friend or if your parents had LP little a, you damn well better get your blood in here and have it checked in yourself. Or if I'm a doctor and I'm taking care of a patient who has high LP little a, I say, you know, next time your kid sees the pediatrician, make sure he gets tested also. That's sort of called cascade testing. We ought to just do it on everybody once right now. And then we know I can never have to worry about LP little a again in you or you, uh, people ought to know their LP little a like they know their blood type for God's sakes. That's how important it is. Mm. And off the top of your head, do you have a cutoff value? How much is the concentration? Yes. Now laboratories measure it in two ways. One is the mass milligrams per deciliter but the other is a particle measurement, which is how many LP little a part, and that's a molar measurement. So in the United States, laboratories reported in milligrams per deciliter. Above 30 milligrams per deciliter is where somebody enters the world of risk. And the higher, the more the risk. With molar concentrations, it's and it's measured in nanomoles per liter, above 40 to 50 nanomoles per liter is where you could be in trouble. And of course, the higher, you know, the worse trouble you would be in. Very interesting, just available in the United States. I don't know globally. There's another test you can do to assess, evaluate the virulency of LP little a. 
Because there are some people who have high LP little a who don't wind up with vascular valve disease. Many do. So, but I don't want to guess that. But one of the pathological mechanisms of LP little a is that APO little a protein traps and binds to what we call oxidized lipids. They're very dangerous lipid species. Oxidized means you're on fire. So if LP little a is carrying these oxidized phospholipids or sterols and it goes into your artery wall, it's like sending a worse LDL particle or LP little a particle into your artery wall because now it's carrying a really bad culprit for tissue injury. So the test we can measure now is called OXPL-APOB, oxidized phospholipids on APOB. That is totally different from a test that's sold that's called oxidized LDL. That's a semi-useless test that nobody should be doing. But oxidized phospholipids on APOB has the potential to be a really helpful diagnostic test in people who have shown they have high LP little a. So it's like a secondary test. And it would just tell you perhaps right now, even be more aggressive with your cardiovascular risk reduction in a person who has not only LP little a, but LP little a plus increased oxidized phospholipids on APOB. B. Okay, and do you have a, a value for this one as well? Uh, I don't, not off the top of my head. I'd have to, it just became available and I actually put, and it, it would depend possibly on which lab because there are different assays to it. So the lab will give you the reference range and it's a pretty small range, but I can't quote. Mm. <laughs> I'm not too sure my general practitioner is aware of these terms. Listen, yeah. this is a nice advance to, the first step is please measure LP little a. Then if it's high, I, I think if you're not comfortable with that, you should refer to a lipidologist, you, you know, to be honest with you. Like anything else in medicine, if you somehow diagnose something you know nothing about, why would you want to take care of it? You'd make a mistake potentially. Mm -hmm. United States, we have lipidologists all over the place. It's they're less frequent elsewhere. But they're there in Europe. I know many of them. So mm. <laughs> but you probably have to travel a little further. Mm. But, you know, in today's world, you can do a lot of virtual consultation, too, mm. with lipidologists. So you can still get pretty decent advice, which your GP can then follow. But if I go to my GP and say, I want to do a lipids panel, he'll say, you're young. Why do you want to check this? Listen, uh, you know how long I've been around in medicine, so... It's tragic that we're at the point now where everybody is not doing lipids earlier in life and acting upon them. Medicine changes slowly. And uh, it is, listen, uh, it was a nice article published in the Journal of Preventive Cardiology this year that looked at lipid profiles across the globe and uh, are people being treated? And, and it was pathetic. It's mm. lipids for the most part are being ignored. It's okay. only the number one contributor to the number one disease in the world. <laughs> there are a few things worth mentioning. So statins, the three main types are made from yeast, I think. Yes. And that fits into because people, oh, no, I'm only going to take something if it's natural. I don't want any synthetic process made in a laboratory or drug made in a laboratory. So the first three, first of all, basically the first statin molecule was uh, a, a statin, it's like in red yeast rice. And, you know, not very potent, but they knew it worked. So pharma went to work and said, we just have to develop, uh, find more potent statins. So the first thing they did was grab more yeast and started investigating what the hell else do yeast make. And they found out that lovastatin, the first statin to ever come on the market, the second simvastatin, and the third pravastatin were all yeast byproducts. So they're as natural as eating a yeast is natural. Now, they said, pharmacists said, okay, great. But you know, the holy grail is we want to lower LDL even more and more and more and more. So let's go into the laboratory and develop. We have the basic structure of what a statin would be, but maybe if we tweak it in the lab a little bit, we can get even more potent inhibitors of the enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. And that led to the development of a torvastatin which for the longest while was the most potent, and then resuvastatin, 
which is the most potent statin, but they are derived in a laboratory in the back of some pharma company. But in the long clinical trials, they show no more side effects than the natural statins. <laughs> so it's a silly, but for those who insist on a natural statin, hey, you've got lovastatin, I wouldn't suggest, but you simvastatin, you better be careful. But uh, pravastatin's been around forever, probably has more clinical trials than any other statin. So it's very usable. And if you can get to go with pravastatin, great, you're taking a natural statin. <laughs> so people that's the story get, on that yeah people are very concerned with things being natural these days yeah look uh, as far as i know everything on the planet is natural so other than a few radioactive elements which were discovered after radio everything is natural if you eat arsenic it's a natural product found in dirt someplace but it's natural in one of your podcasts, you said that statins, your intestine starts absorbing more cholesterol. So that's why it's useful to use two different drugs. So if I take a therapy that interrupts one of those processes, like a statin, I'm going to inhibit cholesterol synthesis. Great. I'll express X number of LDL receptors. But remember, statin is inhibiting synthesis all over the place, including the intestine. So our Genetic factors that regulate cholesterol homeostasis say, wait a minute, all of a sudden this body is not making as much cholesterol. We're creating a cholesterol deficiency. So yo, intestine, start over-absorbing cholesterol. So it's a price that you pay when you prescribe a stat that yes, it inhibits synthesis and upregulates LDL receptors, but in some people it can increase absorption which will slightly diminish the number of LDL receptors that you're expressing. Now, thank God, the amount of increased absorption is pretty small compared to the in inhibition of synthesis. So at the end of the day, the statin will always work. But it also, especially knows where the ApoB is high and knowing that this could happen, why don't day one, I give you actually a lower dose of the statin, but combine it with Zetia. Then I take out synthesis and absorption and low-dose statin plus Zetia gives you the same ApoB LDL cholesterol lowering as does the maximum dose of the statin. So if you understand these dual mechanisms and how they interplay off one another, it makes sense. Conversely, suppose I just give you Zetia because I, oh, you're a hyperabsorber. I'm going to block absorption. The same damn genes say, oh, my God, we're not absorbing cholesterol. Let's just make it. And they turn on the synthesis genes. So one of the prices of Zeti is, yes, you will inhibit absorption more than you will increase synthesis, but wouldn't it be best if you could do both? So the dual therapy makes great sense. Mm. And uh, by the way, if you're doing those blood tests that I told you, you will see that instantly. Hey, the statin lowered LDLC, but what did it do to the absorption marker? Did it go up? And vice versa, did Zeti, I know it blocked the absorption marker, but what did it do to the synthesis marker? So there are diagnostic ways around this if you can get those tests. Most people can't or don't. So we've talked and given values for most of the key parameters in the lipids panel. The one thing we haven't really touched on is the trig value. So you recommend less than 80. It's not me. Look, the guidelines tell you right now they put 150 as higher risk. And that's funny, because if you did measure triglycerides in everybody in the population, 150 is the 75th percentile. That means 75% of people would have a lesser triglyceride. So I don't see how 150 is called a good triglyceride level. A physiologic trig, meaning the amount of triglycerides you need to produce energy in cells, is certainly under 80 milligrams per deciliter, and many people 30 and 40 milligrams per deciliter. So in some people, long before you ever get to a trigger 150, is there danger as it starts to go above 90, 100, 120, 130? And I will make the case, yes. And here's why. Everything is about clearance of these ApoB particles. The LDL receptor binds to it and clears them. What is something that would decrease the binding of an LDL receptor to an ApoB particle and decrease clearance? If that ApoB particle is carrying excess triglycerides, it assumes a different shape. The ApoB has a different configuration. 
triglyceride-rich ApoP particles are poorly cleared. So the biggest causal risk, reason triglycerides cause heart disease is they, it sends ApoB higher and higher and higher. So at what level of triglycerides should you worry about? 150? Might be okay in some people, but for the majority, that will not be okay. In the recent, it's hardly recent anymore, that Reduce It trial where they gave people icosapentanoic acid, EPA, a triglyceride-lowering fish oil, they only wanted to investigate it in people with high triglycerides. At what triglyceride level would they let you in the trial? 132. So they know that 150 is a joke. That's a potential disaster. We want to even check it in people lower than that. So triglycerides can invade your ApoB particles at much lower levels. So if you came to me with a trig of 100, 110, 130, even 150, I have to see what your ApoB is. If you have a trig of 180 and your ApoB is normal, there's probably not a lot of risk for you. If you have a trig of 110, your ApoB is high, oh my God, I have to lower ApoB. Part of that might be a diet that reduces triglycerides, but that's how you ascertain the risk of triglycerides. You must do an ApoB with it. The guidelines will tell you the poor man's ApoB is a blood test called non-HDL cholesterol. You take total cholesterol, you subtract from it from HDL cholesterol, and that's basically the cholesterol that's in ApoB particles. So that's a free calculation that saves you the time and expense of going to get an ApoB level somewhere. It's not quite as good as ApoB, but it serves the purpose. So if you are worried about your triglycerides, maybe looking at non-HDLC, you just have to know different levels at which to respect non-HDL cholesterol than what guidelines tell you. So that's the very intriguing story. So triglycerides, just like lower high HDL cholesterol necessitates ApoB testing to really know what you have to treat. And lastly, on this topic, if is there a guideline in the world that gives you a triglyceride goal of therapy? Not. If you look at all the guidelines, uh, people are surprised to see there is no tri specific triglyceride goal of therapy. Even though they all say at certain levels, triglyceride is associated with risk. But when they tell you if you're treating people with high triglycerides, your goal of therapy is ApoB or non-HDL cholesterol, either one. Not per se to make your triglyceride go from here to there. Because even if I make it 180, go down to 120, you still may have too many triglyceride-rich ApoB-containing particles. So you must quantitate ApoB or guess it with non-HDL cholesterol. Okay, great. Sclerosis. We hear a lot about it going on in the heart. So I read a few papers which say the coronary arteries are a little bit more susceptible to plaque formation. But I've heard about plaque formation in the brain, such as in the development of Alzheimer's disease. Is this related to cholesterol? Listen, uh, in the coronary arteries, you know, we have three of them with branches. And there are specific spots that are most likely where atherosclerotic plaque is going to show up. And it's basically where the arteries kink or change or branch because the hemodynamic forces are different in those areas than in a flat part of the artery. So those are where the particles invade. So that's why there are, some arteries are more susceptible in the heart to atherosclerotic plaque deposition and others. Now, of course, in the brain, if you're talking about arterial plaque, that's in the arteries. That's not in the brain. That's in the arteries that are carrying blood to the brain tissue. So, of course, you don't want plaque in those arteries because that would obstruct blood flow and cause ischemia of the uh, neuro neurological tissue. Now, the plaque that you're talking about with Alzheimer's disease is not cholesterol plaque. It's amyloid and tau proteins and a type of plaque that uh, uh, hard... Um, severely affects neuron function, leading to cognitive impairment. Now, the problem is, I've already told you that nothing in the blood gets to the brain, the lipoproteins in the blood. So the brain has its own lipoprotein system. So the brain synthesizes its own lipoproteins, which have nothing to do with the lipoproteins in your plasma. So you have a central nervous system lipoprotein system. And in the brain, those lipoproteins traffic cholesterol 
the predominant production of cholesterol is in our what's called glial cells, astrocytes primarily. So if an astrocyte produces cholesterol, of course, the cells that are most important in your brain are the neurons because they do all the, the things that cells are supposed to do in the brain. So if an astrocyte makes cholesterol, it has to transport it through its interstitial tissue in the brain. It's called the matrosome, M-A-T-R-I-S-O-M-E. And that lipoprotein that the made will carry cholesterol to the neuron. The neuron expresses very similar receptors that we have in the periphery, LRP, LDL cholesterol. We'll pull the cholesterol out of the uh, lipoprotein produced in the brain, and now the neuron has it. So what are the brain-produced lipoproteins? The brain cannot make ApoB. The, so there are no ApoB-containing lipoproteins in the brain. But I did teach you a little bit about an apoprotein that is used in the periphery to clear chylomicrons and VLDLs. So the main structural apoprotein that astrocytes produce is apoprotein E, capital E. And that, so your particles in the brain are smaller than the particles in the periphery, but they are your cholesterol-carrying lipoproteins in the brain. And the APOE goes and it binds to those receptors in the neuron and delivers cholesterol. This gets way more complicated because APOE exists in over 20 isoforms, but there are three main ones, E2, E3, and E4. And if you are unlucky enough to have the E4 isoform, those are the people, depending whether you have one allele or two, heterozygous or homozygous, who are at most the highest risk of Alzheimer's disease. So APOE4 has great difficulty in supplying the neurons with cholesterol, but also involves lipoproteins carry a lot of substances and the tau protein and the amyloid, which are causative for Alzheimer's disease, are cleared by APOE containing lipoproteins, but you better have the right type of APOE in your brain. So for those of us who have E3, there's much less incidence. People who have E2 isoforms are basically protected against Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So now there's no way I can measure the proteins, lipoproteins in your brain. I'd have to do a brain biopsy and you wouldn't like that. Checking them in the cerebral spinal fluid. No, that's not the brain interstitial fluid. So that's not a way you can do it either. So it gets very difficult. But we can isoform, whatever isoform you have of APOE, it will be in the periphery and the brain. So at least we can check APOE isoforms. I, I would say early in life, because if you identify the E4 isoform, you should take a lot of measures early in life to make that person as metabolically healthy as ever. Because there are many contributing factors to dementia, including insulin resistance, obesity, hypertension. There's a lot of factors you could start chasing earlier in life, perhaps supplemental omega-3 fatty acids and other supplemental therapies that in people with very high propensity for Alzheimer's disease, you at least might want to consult with a, a neurologist who specializes in cognitive issues. So what is it driving the plaque formation in the brain? Oh, the, look, there's a lot of factors. There are other genes involved metabolic disarray but it's apoe4 is the primary gene that's driving it okay. you know you look there are people who don't have e4 who can get alzheimer's disease so it's a multifactorial thing that generates the accumulation of tau and amyloid in the brain and they both uh, yeah well and plaque you know God, there are bacteria that cause plaque in certain organs that has nothing to do with the plaque in your brain or so mm. plaque can just be uh, a fibrotic little disturbance in some tissue. So plaque is a one of these general terms that you better define what you mean. When we're talking about atherosclerosis, you know I'm talking about cholesterol plaque, but with Alzheimer's, it's different type of plaque. Saying that cholesterol has everything to do with the ability to traffic or not track the traffic tau or amyloid. So they are related, but it's the plaque itself is not cholesterol uh, deposits. If someone has a high ApoB, what should be the treatment process? 
what should they first do? Remember, what level ApoB should you should desire depends on how high a risk person they are, the higher the risk, the lower you want it. But if you're also saying early in life, then you should know what a physiologic ApoB. So in general, to ward off heart disease, you'd want to see an ApoB less than 80 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, in, in higher risk people, you want it under 60. I tell you, Europe right now, if in the very high risk is calling under 55. So that's is what the desirable ApoB should be. So for whatever reason, you're a clinician, you say, I got to get your ApoB closer to one of those levels. How can I do that? Always, especially earlier in life, we would say what lifestyle is driving? You know, is it insulin resistance? Uh, is it not insulin resistance? Is there some genetic issue? Play? You have to do a workup and figure out with diets, to be honest with you, whatever you believe is a good diet, most people in general would say the Mediterranean diet nowadays, but if you want to go ketogenic or whatever the hell else, try whatever diet you want. Give it eight weeks at most. See what happens to ApoB. If you correct it with your nutritional and exercise regimen, you're done, at least for the time being. You'll continue to monitor it. If you try your favorite nutritional lifestyle advice and the ApoB is still ugly, you must go to drugs. So the standard pathway right now, I think I would individualize it, but I'm doing more sophisticated testing than most people. In general, you would start with a statin. I would say in most people that should be a low-dose statin unless they've already had a heart attack, then you might want to go high-dose. But a low-dose statin, see what happens to your ApoB. If you get there, you're done. But you will monitor because things do change. If you're not at goal with the lower dose statin, personally, I would add Zetia. Other people would tell you to double, triple, quadruple the dose of a statin. You get almost all of the LDL ApoB lowering with the statin comes with the starter dose. So I think you're wasting time by doubling and tripling the dose of a statin. So if the initial dose of a statin hasn't gotten you to ApoB goal, Zetavi makes the most sense. The next, if you want to go down the oral drug route, bempedoic acid makes the next sense. Uh, but it's expensive because it's still a branded drug. Statins and azetamibe are generic for the most part. So it's easier on a patient's wallet. If somebody is statin intolerant, you might be going sooner to the bempedoic acid because it doesn't get into muscles. So that's your first three oral drugs. If you're not at goal, then you're reaching for a PCSK9 inhibitor. Whether you want to use the monoclonal antibodies every two weeks or the inclycerin every six months, uh, whatever. Personally, I like to do the monoclonal antibodies because they're frequent. In six, eight weeks, I can repeat your lipid profile and see success or not. If you use inclycerin, you have to wait three to six months to repeat your lipid profile. So you're sort of hoping it's a very potent drug. It usually works. So that's the line you go down. We don't use the bioelastic questions for the most part anywhere because they they just bind up the gut a lot and there's bloating and uh, you got to take it multiple times a day. It can interfere with the absorption of some other drugs. So they're not high on the list anymore that we have all these more potent drugs anyway. By the way, uh, just to revisit the bioelastic questions, what they bind up in your gut is bile acids. Bile acids are necessary to absorb lipids. Bile acids came to your gut via the liver, which produces bile acids. The precursor to a bile acid is cholesterol. So the liver takes cholesterol, changes it to a bile acid, puts it in your gut. Normally, once they deliver cholesterol for absorption, our ileum, our distal small intestine, reabsorbs the bile acids. They go back to the liver and they're used again. But if you take a sequestrin, you excrete bile acids, they're not reabsorbed. The liver has to use up more cholesterol to make more bile acids. And if your liver uses up cholesterol, it's going to make more LDL receptors. So I just wanted to fine tune your explanation. on that. Thanks for that. And I'm guessing soluble fiber, such as oats, they may, do they sort of work like bile acid sequestrin? These are one of the adjunct of supplemental things. 
But if you have a serious ApoB, you're going to get nowhere with that. Oh, yes, you want to do it. Great. It's probably it's healthy and perhaps other reasons and doing other things to you. But you're not going to solve many ApoB problems with soluble. You want to start there in a low risk patient, even with the Benacol that we've talked about. There are other yogurts that have lactobacilli in them that can reduce cholesterol absorption also. So there are easier ways to skin a cat that some people, oh, because they're the natural ways. Although Benacol is really synthesized. You know? uh, but they're not serious ApoB lowers for most people. But if you can get there with them, great. Uh, As I said, if you can't get ApoB in the lifestyle, because I'm measuring synthesis and absorption, I would either start a statin or Zetia day one, and then I would figure out what to add to it next. In the real world, benpedoic acid still being almost as expensive as a PCSK9 inhibitor, I would pretty much go to a PCSK9 inhibitor as a third drug because it's way more potent on ApoB lowering than benpedoic acid. If muscle aches were your big problem, maybe the benpedoic acid fits mm. in nicely in that patient. So that's the therapeutic regimen you go down. Look, if you come to me and you're a super rich patient, so price is not an issue, and you just want to get ApoB down and you've read on the internet statins are terrible, you can go to PCSK9 inhibitor day one. There's no primary prevention trial using PCSK9 monotherapy, but how would it not work? <laughs> Anything that lowers ApoB through an LDL receptor has worked. So I know in one of your few other podcasts, you like to recommend textbooks. So maybe you can recommend these textbooks again, and then maybe also give one of your favorite books not related to lipids as well. Uh, listen, everybody should be following me on Twitter at Dr. Lipid or on LinkedIn because almost all my teaching materials, you might have a really long Twitter feed to look through, but you will see that. So last week I did tweet, hey, here are the great lipid textbooks. And then I also tweeted too that there's no way I would ever had an incredible successful teaching career in lipids if I didn't read these two books. So those, and I, I was shocked they're still available on Amazon and really cheap because you're either buying secondhand copies or the ones that never sold. One in, it was published in the 90s was the, Handbook of Lipid and Lipoprotein Testing. It's what is never taught in medical school, the laboratory assessment of lipids and lipoproteins. But if you actually understood how the lab is analyzing them, you, you have to learn a lot of these mechanisms. So, so you'll learn it in spite of yourself. And it's a great paperback textbook. I also put this thousand page hardcover textbook of lipoproteins published, I believe, in 1999 by Illingsworth and Shepard. And look, that's for the Don, if you want a really historical treat, see. But there are way more modern textbooks of lipidology that are worth it. And John Hopkins, Pete Klitovich has one, Christy Bath. So those, but remember, they're referenced, these are serious books on lipids. So it's not like you're going to sit down and start reading it tonight and you'll be You'll have to take them slowly. You might pick a certain chapter that seems more pertinent to you, but they cover everything in way more detail than I just explained today. There's also a, a soft-covered book. It's called the Lipoprotein Primer. Mike Davidson published it uh, probably 10 years ago. It's cheap, and it's really meant for real-world doctors. And it's, listen, on other books, wow. I'm a super avid reader. So as much as I read the scientific literature, I'm always reading whatever. And I don't know that I have a favorite book. One that I was given when I was, I guess, a teenager by my father is Of Human Bondage. I love that book. Tale of Two Cities was a book I fell in love with in my younger years. Right now, I tend to read historic history I'm reading right now uh, Meachin's book on Abraham Lincoln in the United States. So I've, God knows how much I've read on the Civil War here in our country, World War One. World. I'm fascinated by military history. Uh, but I also love sort of, in, as you get into the fiction world, detective novels and things like that. So 
I don't know that I have a favorite. I've probably read a thousand in my life. So that's the type of reading I do. But uh, well, who can go wrong with Tale of Two Cities or Of Human Bondage? Not a book everybody knows about, but it, it just hit me at the right time in my life. Part of the reason I wanted to even become a doctor because I read it in high school and there's a little bit of a medical story to that book. Mm, uh, it's so. more about poor life in Europe and back in you know, the 1800s and 1700s. <laughs> the predecessors, the type of lives they led, and unless they were royalty, the horrors that <laughs> they ran into. <laughs> what is the meaning of life according to Dr. Thomas Dayspring? <laughs> Look, as somebody who's a lot nearer to the end than the beginning, so <clears throat> there should be some wisdom in a person of that age. <laughs> Look, I think if when you can look back and analyze your time on the planet here, if in whatever way you positively contributed to human existence, hey, you could be a fireman like my dad and save lives, put out fires. You could be a garbage man picking up garbage, but you're keeping communities healthy. If you've contributed to the betterment of our brothers and sisters on this planet, I think you've had a successful life. In my life, I think because of the luck, however, I wound up doing global lipid education, so teaching a lot of clinicians and even laymen how to improve their cardiovascular and metabolic risk. I've done a lot of good in my travels on this planet. So at the end of the day, I can say, the at least by the infinite, minuscule number of people we all really interact with, I did good. I helped a lot of people both individuals and doctors caring for people, maybe do a better job in helping people stay a little healthier. So, so I think it's whatever you're doing, that you're not doing anything that's detracting from mankind on the globe, a criminal existence, a warmonger's existence, uh, a polluter's existence, you know, the bad things that we humans often wind up doing. So if you have none of that in your span here and you do some good stuff, I think we're happy that you've had your time on this planet. I can definitely say you're doing that. I love your Twitter posts. They're just these little bite-sized yes. posts, which gets me thinking. It's a little bit technical sometimes, but they're yeah, great. Listen, the job of an educator is to make people think. I think after you listen to me or read me, you ought to say, this guy's an idiot, or maybe I better know what he knows. And the only way that can happen is, start reading and understanding things yourself a little better mm -hmm. and see if anything I said is erroneous or, uh, you know, and in science, you know, you can always quibble with one or two things somebody said, but the bulk of what I said is what you better understand. And then you can start tweaking with where you agree or disagree. Mm. Yes. So science is an evolution. It's not a religion. Yeah. It's Anybody who's a scientist or a doctor pounds their fist. This is it. I know it. It'll never change. They go back into that moron category. I <laughs> used that word today. You, you don't want to know the treatments I was uh, prescribing in 1976. They're off the market. <laughs> Several of them were probably toxic, but it was state of the art in 1976. It's amazing how the world has evolved. Privilege to yeah. live that journey in the cardiovascular world. Through no grand design, it's that silly professor who made me write a paper on A-beta lipoproteinemia. <laughs> he didn't know what he was unleashing. <laughs> Just to emphasize to everyone, they can find you on at Dr. Lipids on Twitter. And they will find that if you're respectful, as you know, I do answer tweets or correspond with people. Now, don't send me your lipid profile and ask me what to do that I can't get involved with being your doctor, but I can give you materials so you better understand your situation. You know, so uh, just be respectful. I don't need you to call me up and say everything you said was idiotic. You will be blocked very quickly. <laughs> I saw you respond with the, the book list and I thought to myself, is, is Dr. Lippard responding to my question? I definitely was. I thought it was a great question. Rarely do people ask it. And uh, so I, the easiest thing was rather than give exact references, which send a picture in a textbook, which they could look up. But but there's many ways to learn. But every certainly clinician should have a serious reference textbook on their bookshelf.
listen, in today's social media world, I sort of love doing these things. And because it's just another way to get people thinking and the message out. I'm honored that, again, this is, look, I believe he's in Switzerland. I'm here in Eastern uh, United States. But it's like we're in the same room together, for God's sake. So how cool is that? Technology connects us. If you ever decide to come to Switzerland, I'll treat you here. I traveling day i've had three million frequent flyer miles at one time but at my ripe old age i have no desire to ever go through an airport again especially in our sort of infectious world nowadays i'm an old timer super well vaccinated but i'm not taking any chances so you're probably not going to see me in switzerland anytime soon and i've certainly on a list of countries that i've never been to that i would like to do closest i've gotten was northern italy <laughs> but mm. one day Switzerland would have been in my next life. I will definitely get there. Maybe this is something you don't want to disclose. How low is your APOB? Now, I did say I do take a PCSK9 inhibitor. I take Evolocumab. Uh, and my APO, and I cannot use a statin. And believe it or not, I cannot use a ZMI because I am a severe muscular side effect with either of those drugs. It's kind of... Far more common with a statin and Zetia, but I, neither one of those could I ever take. So I took a lot of other junk to partially control my lipids. But right now, on an every two-week injection of Evolocumab, my April B, I think it's 49. Amazing. So it's pretty good. And uh, so, thank God. Are you in the high-risk population? Yes, I have a... It was actually about 15, 16 years ago when coronary calcium test came available you know my local hey tom we got this new cac test why don't you come over and get it done you're a lipid guy and i did and it was over 300 so that's a long time ago i had a rather positive coronary calcium score immediately back then nobody knew what to do with that except oh my god you're gonna die so my cardiologist actually admitted me to the hospital the next day and did an invasive coronary angiogram where they put the catheter right up in your heart and inject dye and and my arteries, despite being full of plaque, the lumens were wide open. I had zero obstructive disease. So we now know that it doesn't matter whether you have obstructive disease or not. The disease is in the wall of your arteries. So you better get your cardiovascular risk factors under control. And that's when I really started. And for the longest time, I was taking fibrates certain supplements, even tried niacin for a while until I found out the downside to niacin. So I was using weaker drugs to get, and then, geez, once the PC, and PCSK9 has been around a while now, I immediately went on them and at least for the last almost 10 years, not, you know, been very well controlled with APOB. So I guess it's never too late to start in my next life, I'll start paying more attention to my lipids when I'm 20 years old, and not 60, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, it just goes to show you as the trials do show, it's never a lost cause. Even if somebody's had a heart attack, you can prevent the next heart attack. Mm -hmm. Or if they have atherosclerotic disease, you can really reduce clinical events. And I've had, despite that, what you would call pretty serious coronary disease, never had a single cardiovascular symptom or God forbid it. An event like a heart attack, bypass, angina, stroke. Mm. <laughs> also heard that you've gotten into fasting. Has the fasting improved your APOB? Uh, you know, it's funny. Many years ago, my buddy Peter Atia got me, uh, you know, he wanted me to lose weight. And so how we did that is I went on his intermittent fasting regimen, you know, four or five days a month, really hypocaloric. The rest, you're just pretty much on a, somewhat low carbohydrate diet, not that you get ketogenic or not, but low enough that you're reducing insulin and uh, correcting other parameters. Uh, so I did that and probably over a two year period, I lost upwards of 70 pounds, you know, and really went down. It's kind of funny through that whole thing, my lipids really didn't change. They, you know, once I started PCSK9 inhibitor, they were good and they remain good. Some of my other metabolic markers like insulin and things like that got better uh, for whatever that means. And then, uh, you know, I was still working at the time. I was in laboratories here in Richmond going to work. And then around 2019, I was about to retire and I did. And then my buddy Peter called me up and wanted me to get a little bit involved with 
the people in his practice with education, providing a little bit of lipid advice. So I did join his practice, but I would say within a few months of that, Mr. COVID showed up, which radically changed our world. So and in other words, in my world, at my age, it's a 100% virtual world. I mean, I go out of my house to fill maybe once a month, get gas in my car, do a little food shopping quickly. But you know, otherwise, I'm living in a virtual world. The bad part of that is I've slowly regained a bunch of that weight or so. I lost upwards of 70 pounds. I've put on probably 40 already. Still nowhere near what I was. And, uh, you know, one day, uh, I don't know what I'll ever, re you know, I think some of the thoughts on intermittent fasting and fasting have changed a lot. Even Peter's not the biggest advocate of that anymore. But I definitely would have to be more hypocaloric than I am mm. now and uh, a little bit more restrictive on the carbs mm. that uh, I'm eating but, nowadays than mm. I did. Did the fasting lower your APOB or was it just more a weight thing? Uh, you know, I, I was pretty much on the PCS game. So really the, the fast, believe it or not, even when the old days were my APOB was high and I was very insulin resistant, my triglyceride levels were 100, 101. So, I, but I had very triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and that just goes to show you: be careful what you think about a triglyceride. So, look, on the fasting and stuff, my trigs did go down to like thirty and stuff. My LDL cholesterol dropped a little bit. The ApoB dropped a bit, but it wasn't as dramatic. So, I think the benefits I've got of the fasting and hypocaloric was more the weight loss, orthopedic benefits, all other aspects of personal health. But in my case, the I can do pretty well with just mm. the PCSK9 inhibitor. That's not true with everybody. And that's why some people do wind up on two, three, four drugs. So I am clearly a very responsive person to PCSK9 inhibitors. Mm. And yeah. I think, uh, in fact, I just got approved from it by my third party carrier. Uh, in January, I'll be switching over to the every six month PCSK9 inhibitor. For the sole reason is that they'll pay for that and they don't want to pay for my every two weeks, if you can explain that bizarre rationale to me. They're both the same thing, just have different <laughs> use. <laughs> okay, but I'll, so I'll be going over to the inclycerin soon. You're still living in the virtual world now, even after yeah, COVID? I, I just look at age 76. I've gotten every booster you can get. I am well immunized against pneumococcal pneumonia, influenza. But if I'm going to die at my age, other than dropping dead one night of something, uh, it's, you know, it's going to be an infectious disease. So I just, I have no need to go expose myself to public gatherings. I've lived my life. As you can imagine, in my 3 million frequent flyer miles, I've been every place in the world. I've seen every sightseeing place you can see. A lot of those, my wife accompanying me. So there's no need for me to, I don't have to go see the Eiffel Tower anymore, or, uh, you know, Squaw Valley out in the Western mm -hmm. United States. I'm very happy living in my, I got a very nice home here in Virginia. I love being active in the social media network like I am. I'm an avid reader, reading all day, get great enjoyment of it. I get on the treadmill every day and, you know, I do some stuff. So. I'm in a very happy existence right now. You know, I have a grown son. We don't have grandkids. So I'm in a very peaceful, happy part of my life right now. So mm. I, I don't need to do the things that a lot of people still love to do, even at my old age. I've done mm. it all a million times. Do you have any parks nearby or somewhere where you can at least just get some fresh air? Yeah, there is a, a park nearby, but I don't, there's no, I don't have to do it. My treadmill is my exercise. No, it's just not a life I have to do anymore. So I don't need to go hang out with people at the park or jog around the park. I got my wife. We're married over 50 years. Uh, we have a very nice existence together. I have still, uh, who at 76 is still doing as much high level education as me and interacting still with people globally and locally, helping their health care. It's that's very satisfying. And uh, I, you know, I have the TV on the background. There are sports I love and there are shows, including in some of the news, which is always horrible nowadays, but I, I stay well, well attuned to that. And, you know, we have the Netflix and other things where there's movies galore. So there's many ways for an old man to amuse himself, especially a guy who's done everything. It's not like, 
oh god i haven't been there or there let's go visit that Mm. as long as anybody is i think content in their own existence and happy i'm not depressed in any way Mm. that's pretty cool that's the most important so no excuses then i expect plenty of content on a daily basis and the last thing i'll say is now i have to sign off go downstairs and i think when i came up to my little video room here i told my wife oh i'm just going to do an hour phone call (laughs) she's wondering it's a wonder she hasn't knocked on the door to see if i'm still alive sorry if the dinner's cold or the lunch no it's still not dinner time in virginia here soon but i'll get there in plenty of time thanks a lot for tuning in again to foolproof mastery you can support foolproof mastery in a number of ways first of all please subscribe to our youtube channel and leave a review on apple podcasts with an honest opinion of what you think Leave plenty of comments on YouTube and share with your friends, family and colleagues if you feel that you have learned something new in order to keep on getting the knowledge out to as many people as possible. Finally, keep on living every day to the maximum and see you next time for another episode. Ciao.